Hi, folks. I'm Wound Care Karen. I love being a nurse, and I have a passion for wound care. I want to inspire nurses, educate patients, and have a little fun along the way. Now, as we all know, patients who are very sick and debilitated are at very high risk of developing wounds. And our sickest patients are very often found in an ICU, an intensive care unit. And sometimes they're so sick that they have trouble breathing, so they require intubation. And that means we insert a tube down their throat so a machine can essentially breathe for them. Now, most of the time when this is done, we put the patient into a medically induced coma. But there are many, many risks associated with this artificial sedation. So today, I am very excited to introduce a nurse practitioner who is championing an alternative to this outdated status quo. So introducing Kaylee Dayton. She has her doctorate of acute care nursing practice. She's a critical care nurse practitioner. She's an entrepreneur with her own consulting business. She's a busy mom. And she has two podcasts to boot. So I get exhausted thinking of all that. So Kaylee, <laughs> welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. And can you just start by telling our audience a little bit about your, your early nursing career, how you started out? Absolutely, Karen. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm thrilled to hear about a wound care podcast. <laughs> there is such a need. And um, yeah, with my history, I started my career as a brand new nurse in an ICU in Salt Lake City, Utah. Wow. And in the interview with the nurse manager, she asked me point blank, would you be willing to walk patients that are on ventilators? And I was so new, Karen, I had no idea what that really meant. Mm -hmm. But I just nodded my head and smiled and said, yes, absolutely. I, I'll do anything. Just teach me everything, right? Right. And uh, I didn't realize how exceptional that unit was because everyone on that team was so nonchalant about this thing that they do. They allow almost every patient to wake up after the procedure of placing the breathing tube. After that intubation is done, patients are no longer given more sedation and they come out of that sedation and they wake up and you tell them, hey, remember what we talked about 20, 30 minutes ago? Or if we didn't have a chance to talk beforehand, mm -hmm. you're in the ICU, you have a breathing tube, here's what's going on. And usually they did really well. And then we would get them up walking shortly after. And these were very sick patients. So a lot of times when I talk to critical care clinicians and audiences, they scoff and they say, well, those aren't really sick patients or that's not a real ICU. So now, you know, years into this, I can say that unit had one of the highest acuity COVID units in the state of Utah. Wow. And they still continue that practice. So there's no longer this, our patients are different or different kind of stuff. They were treating the same patients in the same community throughout the same state with the same diagnosis or worse, as the yeah. rest of the state and the country and the world, but they were doing it a completely different way. We were having a totally different experience. And so that was my birth into critical care medicine. So here I am, super um, naive, absorbing all of this, thought it was completely normal. Um, we, there are three sessions of mobility a day and most patients are walking. So if they walked into the hospital, short of breath, hypoxic, you know, they're short of oxygen, you get them on a ventilator, you're going to get them up walking. And so we would walk physical therapy two times a day. And then at night, I would walk a patient on the ventilator with respiratory therapy mm -hmm. and a CNA and or the family. And it was just normal. So I did that for the first few years. And then I became a travel nurse. Mm -hmm. And I do remember one nurse practitioner, Polly Bailey, which we'll talk about her. Mm -hmm. uh, she did say, you know, Kaylee, it's going to be different elsewhere. And that was it. She didn't explain, explain anything else beyond that. And I was like, well, that's what I'm looking for. You know, I, I was 20, 
How old was I? I think 24 at the time. Single. I just wanted to go have an adventure, go to these big cities. And so I was like, yeah, Polly, I'm okay with that. I can do different, you know? <laughs> so I took off, right? And then I was suddenly in these this ICU that was totally different. I could feel it the second I walked in. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I noticed was that the lights were down in the middle of the day. All the patients were in bed and they all looked like they were sleeping slash dead. Yeah. yeah. But I could see the monitors that they weren't. And I got my patient assignment and my patient was intubated on a ventilator and um, sedated. Mm-hmm. And that was weird to me. So I asked the nurse that was orienting me to the unit, hey, can I get the patient? Can I take sedation off and get them up because I wanted to continue my routine of doing a full exam, including a neuro exam, what's going on in their brain, um, get them to the chair, ready for physical therapy, you know, the same old to me. What you were used to, yeah. What I was used to. And uh, boy, the look in that nurse's face was absolute shock and horror and terror. (laughs) And she said, what? No, they're they're intubated, which was like not the response I was expecting. And I I said, I, I know they're intubated, but why are they sedated? And she said, with more like earnest, right? because they're, they're intubated. I said, I know they're intubated, but why are they sedated? And we went in circles around this. And I realized that I had no idea what she was talking about. And she had no idea what I was talking about. That was the first time two plus years into my career in critical care medicine that it had ever crossed my mind that a patient would be sedated into a medically induced coma just on the grounds of being intubated Mm -hmm. and on the ventilator. Mm -hmm. But I quickly realized that that's what everyone else expected. And I didn't know the reality or what happens during comas or medically induced comas. Mm -hmm. And I was still new into my career. You just want to be like, as a traveler, I'm the guest. I just wanted to fit in. And I was like, with the flow. Yes. Yeah. And you kind of question yourself. (laughs) I was like, well, I mean, I did that for two years, but maybe, you know, there, everyone does things differently. There's a different way to do stuff. So, okay. And, and what can I do? No one right. believed me. So I was like, well, I'll just do what they do then. Mm-hmm. And after, I think even just after the first six months, I was like, this, this isn't fun anymore. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of things I just didn't, I didn't even want to be a nurse anymore after those two years. So then I come back to this home ICU in Salt Lake City, Utah for grad school. And suddenly I'm enjoying my job again and having human, human contact and interactions. I'm seeing patients get better, successfully excavate, walk out the doors. And I was like, okay, this feels different. This looks different. This straight up is different. Why? Mm-hmm. So I'm digging into it. I'm starting to put the puzzle pieces together. And then I sat next to um, a man on an airplane ride just in the middle of all of this. And he asked what I did for a living. And I said I was a nurse at the time. And uh the color dropped from his face and he started telling me about his experience as an ICU patient. He'd had an endoscopic procedure, had a perforated esophagus, per- developed peritonitis, septic shock. He was on a ventilator for weeks, but he barely mentioned the ventilator. All he talked about the next like 20 minutes was what it was like to be in the middle of a forest with his limbs nailed to the ground while trees came crashing down on him and he couldn't flee. And I, of course, wanted to diagnose him and I right. said things like, oh, it sounds like you had ICU delirium, but that meant nothing to him. And I realized that he really believed those things happened like psychologically mm. he still was struggling with those memories so though he knew he was in the ICU that's not really where he was and I was amazed by how impacted he was he said for a year after discharge every time he closed his eyes he would be lost back in that forest lost back in those scenarios I don't like to call him now that I understand I don't call them hallucinations nightmares delusions they are experiences they are real mm-hmm. um, this is one of the main causes of post ICU PTSD yes now Listening to him, I started thinking back to all those patients that I had sedated during those two years. And I thought, no, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> they were they were sleeping, right? Mm. That's what we call it. It's not what ha- this has to be a fluke. So I went to ICU survivor groups and I didn't even have to ask or put a post out. 
I just scroll through and it's post after post about panic attacks, cognitive impairments, their mm-hmm. life being completely either destroyed or changed forever, inability to go back to work. I was shocked. And so I started to dive more into the research and I realized that this is not one in a million coincidence. This is the, at least 20% of our survivors from the ICU. Mm-hmm. And then I started to ask more questions in my home ICU saying, what is going on here? And they had done a data collection comparing their outcomes as far as discharge disposition mm-hmm. to a neighboring hospital within the same hospital system. They did the same patient, the same level of acuity, the same like level of sickness. Mm-hmm. All the same. They found that 98% of survivors from that ICU, that awake and walking ICU, mm-hmm. discharged home from the hospital. Directly home. Directly home. Wow. The neighboring hospital, again, all the same staffing ratios, protocols, everything but the sedation and mobility piece. Mm-hmm. Only 46% of their patients discharged home. Yeah. And that just sent me into a spiral. <laughs> and I just started digging in deeper. And that's um, really just set me on this mission and platform to disseminate this information because every time I learned something, I kept thinking about all the wonderful people that I worked alongside with as a travel nurse, as a float nurse in that same hospital system with the wake and walking ICU. And I kept thinking, I certainly didn't know this information. Mm -hmm. And I know that these people would absolutely change their practices if they knew what it was like for patients during and after the ICU. And so that was how the podcast came to be. God came to me one day and said, start a podcast. I didn't even Mm -hmm. listen to podcasts. Just turned on my microphone, started talking, and um, it's been an amazing journey. I've learned so much, and it's really neat to see the critical care community wake mm-hmm. up and yes. really change things because they genuinely care and they did not know this. I can testify to that. Not that I'm not that I work in an ICU. I do tangentially, being a wound care nurse. I've yeah. worked, you know, I've walked into ICUs to treat ICU patients, and on the flip side, I have you know former ICU patients come to see me now. In, in an outpatient uh, wound care clinic. So yeah, um, to quote what the kids say though, I was today years old when I learned that it's even possible for intubated patients to be woken up. And then I was even more gobsmacked when I heard we can walk them around. So I, I mean, just my mind is blown. When I first heard about, I heard from you on a podcast, you were uh, a guest on a Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, one of my favorite podcasts, and it was part of the uh, pod crawl. It was episode 219. And um, so ever since then, like, I just can't get my mind off it because again, I've been a nurse for 30 years and this is the first time I'm hearing of this. So I, kn- I know I'm not the only one. So just no, like, absolutely. exactly, exactly. So just like when you started out in that ICU and you didn't know about other ICUs, it's the same. I'm just experiencing the flip side of it. So I, I've been on your website. Um, I've read more about the Bailey method. Can, so now can we talk about who Polly Bailey is and, and, you know, how was she inspired? How did she know to, to even question this? Uh, this this story, I'll, I'll never get tired of telling Polly's story. And she's so humble and she gets mortified that I just sit there and brag about her. But she inspires me and she's such an inspirational story to nurses and clinicians in general. Yes. So imagine, let's rewind the clock, okay? Critical care medicine, uh, to 1970s, let's say. Mm-hmm. Patients that on ventilators usually had tracheostomies. They mm-hmm. were not the sick patients that we have now. But when they were on a ventilator, they were awake, walking, playing chess, eating even with the tracheostomies. But then in the 1990s, we started making some developments. We were experimenting with things. We were learning things. Diagnosis like acute respiratory distress syndrome started to become a thing. ARDS, yes. Yep. And we didn't really know how to treat ARDS. We just recognized that this is a condition that happens and lungs are very stiff, very sick. Mm -hmm. So the initial approach was to give high pressure and large volumes into the lungs. 
Mm-hmm. These were archaic ventilators. The ventilators mm-hmm. we have now are much more gentle. And they can they have sensors. Yes. Yep. They can they follow your own breath. You can time. You can just adjust so many things to acclimate for the patient. Mm-hmm. That was not the case in the '90s. So we have these sick lungs, archaic ventilators that just pound air and pull it out. Mm-hmm. Large volumes, high pressure. We were blowing lungs out all the time. So there, and they had stiff endotracheal tubes. So there's no way mm-hmm. these patients could be awake, calm, compliant, and synchronous with the ventilator. So that's when we started bringing in these medications from the operating room. I see. High-dose barbiturates, opioids, benzodiazepines, uh, paralytics. Mm-hmm. And we started to give those. And whoa, we noticed immediately that they, one, synchronized with the ventilator. Initially, they oxygenated better. And I think especially the nurses noticed their eyes were closed. They were still. They looked like they were sleeping. And it was appeared so much more humane. And I think that's when this belief that sedation was sleep was born. Mm-hmm. And though they were using this approach for patients with ARDS, those beliefs influenced then the adaptation of this approach to automatically place the patients into comas mm-hmm. for patients on ventilators for other reasons, whether it's pneumonia, asthma, COPD, you name it. There are so right. many reasons why patients can be on a ventilator. But then we started thinking, well, it's got to be better, more humane, more comfortable. We've got to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's when we started to do every patient into medically induced comas, no questions asked the second they're intubated. So mm-hmm. Holly was a nurse in a shock trauma ICU there in Salt Lake City, Utah. She was watching this all go down. She was, you know, a part of it. That's how she was trained. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know anything else that we really didn't have studies on this yet. She followed a survivor um, at the time they had primary care nurses or primary nurses. So that she followed her throughout the hospitalization. Right. Um, they didn't really have rehabilitation. So they just scooped them off the gurneys, threw them into the car and said, good luck, have a good life. She, um, this patient was a young mother in her thirties and she was from Polly's community. So Polly went and visited her in her home and she saw firsthand the cognitive, physical and psychological destruction, mm. um, that had happened during that medically induced coma. And she was totally shocked. It took like a year for her to be able to get up the stairs. Her husband was helping with her bedpan at home and, um, just, she was completely traumatized, um, from the delirium she suffered under mm. sedation. And this is before delirium was really a diagnosis or thing. I think they called it ICU psychosis, but they didn't really know what it was like or the rates or how to treat it, you know, any of that. But Polly was mortified. And she went to her medical director, who was Dr. Terry Klemmer. He's episode number two of my podcast. And she said, what are we doing? Why are we working so hard? This is the life that we're sending people off to have. I mean, you can imagine female young nurse in the 90s <laughs> questioning this. And so he said, well, go to literature. What is what do the studies say? She scoured everything and there was nothing. Mm-hmm. But that didn't deter her from following her intuition. And she said, okay, well, hear me out. <laughs> it's going to sound crazy, but what if we don't sedate them? What if we keep them awake and moving? And he, Dr. Ter- Clemmer said that he was very incredulous. He was very nervous, but he did trust Polly and the nursing instinct. And he knew Polly would keep her patients safe. So he let her experiment. And immediately they saw a huge contrast in patient outcomes. Wow. And so they started doing it with more and more patients. And it, it was hard by and initially. You know, Mm -hmm. nurses were scared. No one was doing this. Um, And it was a new skill set. And uh, it it was it was hard because you start sedation and then you take sedation off. They're delirious. They're weak. It's it's really difficult. And so um, that same hospital started a new ICU, a respiratory ICU. They let Polly spearhead all of the hiring and the training of the nurses. So she pulled in nurses from nursing homes who knew nothing about critical care. Oh, that's genius. Yep. (laughs) She did because she realized, I think, throughout those years of finding the culture that she yeah, just needed yeah, yeah. a culture cleanse. Mm-hmm. So she said, welcome to ICU. We will teach you all the ICU stuff. But here, we don't even sedate patients. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. 
So that's how this Awaken Walking IC was born. So that was like early 2000s when she started her own unit, established this culture, this practice, and and then she became a nurse practitioner and she's continued to guard this practice. So even when COVID hit and everyone's frantic and scurrying and running back to all of these things that we were doing in the 90s. Right. Holly, I was there right with her as a nurse practitioner. She kept saying, this is a cute respiratory failure. We're going to do what we know. Helps patients survive on the ventilator. And that's why their mortality rates in that COVID ICU were less than half of the same uh, of the other COVID units in the same hospital system. And it's all because of Polly Bailey. And so she put out the first study to show that it was safe and feasible to walk patients on ventilators during acute respiratory failure. And that was published in 2007 from a data collection, I think from 2003 or 2004. Mm -hmm. And that totally shook the ICU community. People scorned her at conferences. They were terrible to her, but then they Mm -hmm. ran off into their own research. Right. And it it set up this domino effect. So the ABCDF bundle, all the a lot of the delirium research, things that we have, um, mm-hmm. the mobility studies, that was a lot of it's inspired by Polly Bailey. The difference, though, from, I mean, she really masters the ABCDF bundle, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. It's a protocol to help prevent and treat delirium, get clinicians to do mobility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She was doing that long before that was overdeveloped. She's got it mastered. But the Bailey method is what I call her approach to letting patients wake up after intubation unless they have an indication for sedation. Right. So just asking that question, do they even have an indication for sedation, such as seizures, the inability to oxygenate with movement, intracranial hypertension. Mm. Those are circumstances and cases in which it is unavoidable. The risks of sedation do not outweigh the benefits. Yes, gotcha. We have to bite the bullet, do it for that moment. But other than that, we're going to let them wake up right away and get them moving right away and prevent the harm. Whereas most of the community, if they are progressive about delirium and um, mobility, they're still trying to clean it up on the back end. But the mm-hmm. Bailey method is stop it at the gate. Don't let it happen to begin with. Yes. Then you don't have a mess to clean up is essentially. Yep. Yes. Which Polly just sounds amazing. That's, that's really, I have so many questions. So, <laughs> so but before we talk about the actual like process or procedure of an awake and walking ICU, can we first talk about the risks, the dangers, the side effects of current practice because so my audience, I, I do have some nurses in my audience, but I also have, you know, family members, lay people, physicians, therapists. So if we can just all get on the same sheet of music and talk about there are many, many, many risks to putting patients into a coma, right? Absolutely. When I started looking into this research and realizing the harm of these medications, Mm -hmm. especially for prolonged periods of time, I was really upset because at that point I had spent two years giving these medications. I was in charge of titrating them, Mm. starting them. I determined when they turned, went off for the most part. And I was under the understanding that it was sleep. Right. And what I wish that one, we included in informed consents. I wish that we told families and even patients that we have the chance of these risks. Mm-hmm. And I wish what I wish that we talked about in our rounds amongst ourselves and in, our, in an interdisciplinary collaboration mm-hmm. as we're deciding whether or not to sedate a patient or mm-hmm. when to take sedation off is that sedation can be lethal. Yes. It is proven that the more sedation you give, the more likely a patient is to die, right. which is conflicting because a lot of the IC community likens or, or associates higher acuity or the sicker a patient is, the more they need sedation. Mm-hmm. And that especially has been exacerbated by COVID, right? So mm-hmm. we need to clear the air that this is really high risk intervention to put someone into a medically induced coma. And only with those exceptions should we be doing so. Right. It should That's- be last resort, not not first. Last- yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's not, I know in the movies, it, it looks like someone's sleeping and, and sometimes it can even look like that in real life, but it's not a peaceful sleep. They're not asleep. It's not a peaceful slumber, right? It's not right. sleep as we medically know it, right? It's artificial sedation. It's not 
the body's natural sleep cycle. In fact, I would venture to say that honestly, ICU patients that are sedated are probably sleep deprived. Do you agree with that? Right? Spot on. And I actually, I've said as much as to say, I get really, I guess, triggered and upset now when we call it sleep. I think after talking to dozens and hundreds even of survivors. Yes. And then looking at the research, Mm -hmm. um, we have looked at brain activity, Mm -hmm. you know, EEG monitoring, looking at brain activity while patients are sedated, and it does not resemble sleep at all. Wow. And in fact, there's no REM3 or REM4 cycle going on. So it blocks and prevents sleep and yes, causes sleep deprivation. So when Mm -hmm. clinicians say that they are sleeping or there's a sleeping medication, I just say it stops right there. That is misinformation, anti-science. Mm-hmm. And they're just shocked, right? But I don't, I, I hope I never offend people, but we have to clear the air that is not sleep. And this sleep deprivation that it causes is one of the ways in which sedation leads to delirium. Exactly. Which, delirium, I think, probably sounds nicer than some of the other terms. We hear the word delirium, but I wish I understood that delirium can be considered acute brain failure. Mm-hmm. An organ failure. Yes. So we turn the brain off or we disrupt it so that we can take care of the other organs. But the brain is really essential to survival. <laughs> yes. And then quality of life. So that delirium can lead to a post-ICU dementia. Mm. This acute brain failure can lead to a chronic brain failure. They mm-hmm. look, they their brains and the, their presentation, their function is like an early stage Alzheimer's. Yes. I didn't know that, right? You just see the patient that's confused and agitated. And what we what do we do? We turn sedation back on when that happens. Mm-hmm. But we don't realize that they're having a brain failure and we're causing it for the most part. Um, this delirium also leads them to have these alternative experiences that can be very graphic, vivid, gruesome. I don't know why. More often than not, they are absolutely traumatizing and they live with that mm-hmm. psychological trauma. So I've had survivors tell me just the, the worst things. Mm-hmm. They for Have you ever had a bad dream? I had a dream the other night. I'm going to be really vulnerable. I have a daughter with special needs and I had a dream that she was in the bathtub and I left the water on mm. and, and she died. So oh, I woke up from that. Like I woke up immediately. I don't know. That was probably like a 30 second, one minute dream. Right. I still am emotional talking about that. Yeah, that you're, was, you're getting teared up. Yeah. I know. It was, it was so brief, right? But it was right. It was, it was really enough to me that it was like it hit all sorts of parts of my mother heart, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So imagine something probably even more real than that lasting for days to weeks. Longer. Yes. And they are so lost in it. So they think that their kids are kidnapped. They're traveling all over the world to save their kids. They try to get there and their kids are gone. Mm. Um, my most recent episode, 132, he talks about that. It's a survivor. And he said um, he finally came to a room full of um, women dressed in nurses uniforms. And he's like, oh, there, there it's going to be safe. And then he realizes it's a prostitute ring. And that's what his daughters have been sold into. Oh. So then they take him out of sedation and he's surrounded by nurses. And he thinks they're the ones that have kidnapped his daughter and they're in on it, right? This right. lasts for days to weeks, even after the sedation's off. It takes a long time for that brain to heal. And so mm-hmm. th- these are these are memories and scars that they have to carry with them. Some people think that like their spouse cheated on them or that they've been divorced from their spouse or their spouse was the one trying to hurt and kill them. Mm. Then they have to do intensive therapy to heal those emotions so they can have that relationship with their spouse again. The spouse that sat by their bedside. Yes, day by the whole day. Yes. I mean... We in the ICU have no idea. It is not usually worth that price. So it causes delirium. Mm-hmm. It also increases the risk of DVTs or um, blood clots. Oh, yes. They're, they're lying motionless. They lose all this muscle. It changes how the blood flows as well as our ability to um, control blood flow um, with our with the valves in our, our vasculature. 
Yeah. Um, the muscle wasting, we, uh, what I didn't know for a long time is that one of our favorite medications, propofol, is a mitochondrial toxin. It is toxic to the muscles. Oh. It also inhibits the sodium channels. So it also impairs the neuromuscular connection. So even before the muscle mass is atrophied and gone, it's not getting the signals. It's not getting the signals in the normal way. So this is why patients quickly become unable to sit, stand, walk swallow, talk, Mm -hmm. breathe independently. Those muscles are essential for breathing. Our diaphragm, our respiratory muscles. So what happens is for a lot of patients, maybe they come in, let's say COVID, their lungs are sick. Um, Now they're being being given medications that are toxic to the brain and toxic to the muscles. Oh my god! So once the ventilator settings are low or they don't, the lungs don't need so much pressure and support or oxygen. Then we take off sedation and we let them try to breathe on their own and they can't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are too weak to support their own work of breathing or too weak to cough and clear up their own mucus and secretions. Mm -hmm. So all of this makes it leads up to this scenario of having to have a tracheostomy. Yes. Then be sent to a long-term care unit or a rehabilitation to then relearn how rebuild all of those basic human functions. We create adults that are even more capacitated and helpless than newborns. Yes. Whereas I saw in that awake and walking ICU, most of their COVID patients, I think it was like you could count on one hand throughout the whole pandemic, how many of their patients had to have tracheostomies? Wow. Because when you sit, stand, walk, you engage all those muscles and also you're not getting medications that are toxic to the muscles. So that's really important. And it plays into this development of this skin rotting, these pressure injuries. When you can't shift your own body, turn yourself, and you're staying in one that one spot. Obviously, for many reasons, as you understand, and I'm not, I don't have to explain it to you. Yes, you rot away. Your muscles yes. are atrophying, and your skin literally rots. And I remember saying that to Polly Bailey that I was going to do an episode. I called it "The Cost of Rot." <laughs> uh-huh. She was mortified that I would call it rot, but that 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 is what it is. It is. Yes. This isn't the time to be politically correct. No. Yeah. That's what happens to your skin when you lay in one position for too long. It it literally rots. And when you're sedated and you can't move, Mm -hmm. you can't do that. And then survivors talk about even how traumatizing it is to come out of sedation. Even if they didn't suffer delirium, they Mm -hmm. can't lift a finger. Right. They can't touch the remote. They can't use the call light. They can't write. They can't communicate. Mm. They are stuck in that one position then for days to weeks longer. So maybe they're in a coma for three weeks. Now they get months of being dependent on turning from the nurses. And that's a lot of reasons why we have the pressure injury rates that we do in the ICU. And so all of this, the physical impairment, the muscular atrophy, the um, cognitive impairments, the psychological trauma, that plays into their experience in the ICU, in the hospital, in rehabilitation. But then it carries with them for the rest of their lives. They suffer depression, anxiety, Um, they lose their careers, their relationships, their family dynamics, all of it decreases their quality of life and long-term mental health problems. I've seen um, at least one survivor in the support group that died by suicide because of the burden of all of these complications. And uh, it's really hard for them to imagine living the rest of their lives like that. And so their risk of mortality, even after the ICU, your risk of dying is three times higher just from delirium alone, Mm -hmm. not including... I think it's, um, if you are an ICU survivor and you do not have ICU acquired weakness or diaphragm dysfunction, your two year survival rate is like 76%. Wow. But if you do have ICU acquired weakness and diaphragm dysfunction, so if you get weak enough to the point of needing a tracheostomy mm-hmm. because of being a medically induced coma, your two year survival rate is 36%. Oh my gosh. Those odds are horrible. So it just makes sense. If you don't have to be in a medically induced coma, if you don't have to rot. <laughs> right. 
and suffer acute brain failure and all of these complications to just let them wake up, cope with their situation, fight mm-hmm. for their own lives mm-hmm. and have the chance to walk out the doors and actually resume their lives as a whole. Yes. Yeah. And and we're talking a lot right now about literally just the physical um, problems from being in an ICU. We haven't even mentioned the financial uh, costs, oh. right? That's, that's a whole other episode. Um, but just speaking from a wound care aspect, the, the financial impact of even one pressure injury, a bed sore, decubitus, skin rot, whatever you want to call it, it is usually hundred, at least a hundred thousand dollars. And that's one uh, injury. Say you have multiple, you know, one on your fanny and one on your heel. Well, then you're looking at, you know, 150, 200,000. And again, that's just financial. So then how does that impact your social life and your, your sexual health? All that, all, you know, all of it, the mental, physical, social, all of the, the health problems that come from staying in an ICU. That first survivor told me, um, you know, after sobbing to me as a stranger mm-hmm. on a plane for <laughs> 20 plus minutes, he said, I'm sorry, I feel so bad even saying this because I know I should be grateful that I survived, that they quote, saved my life. But I died in the ICU. I lost my life there. My life after the ICU was nothing like it was beforehand. And he was in his mid-40s, maybe. Oh, wow. And he said, I will never cross a toe back in the ICU. I don't care how reversible, how treatable my condition is. I will never go back into the ICU. I cannot live through that again. Oh, wow. And I, I think a lot of that is the delirium. Oh, yes. I, yeah. I mean, yes, he took a long time to physically rehabilitate, but the psychological cognitive, a year after discharge, the woman, the wife that slept on the floor of his ICU mm-hmm. was then his ex-wife. <sighs> he lost everything. He didn't, hadn't gone back to work. Mm-hmm. I didn't know enough at the time to say, are you having cognitive impairments? Mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. you able, cognitively able to balance your checkbook? You know, right. What's your, your memory email? like? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he was on a, it was four years after the fact. He was on a plane, so he was at least able to leave his house, but many cannot. Right. Right. Wow. So it, it just completely changed my perspective of how we make those decisions in that moment. Yes. But I, I promise you, ICU clinicians are vastly unaware of this. No one, especially nurses, would ever intentionally sign patients up for this course. Mm-hmm. They sincerely sedate because they deeply believe and are trained and groomed to believe that sedation is sleep, that patients are less traumatized because they're, quote, unaware of their surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that is rooted in what they see when they turn off sedation and they turn it down mm-hmm. and patients are delirious. If they're still strong enough, they will come out thrashing. Yes, they see the struggle. Yes. Nurses, physical therapists, and occupational therapists, I know you need continuing education credits to renew your license or your certifications, and you're already listening to my podcast, so why not get credit for it? Head on over to rnegade.pro, listen to podcasts, take a test, and voila, you've got CEs. You can purchase them individually or save money by buying a bundle. Save yourself from yet another boring webinar. Listen, learn, and get credits. Check them out at rnegade.pro. That's R-N-E-G-A-D-E dot pro and earn credit for what you're already doing. Yes, this is, this is just so true. And what we're talking about, what you're talking about is evidence-based, right? I mean, this isn't just a few rogue nurses and doctors that are like winging it. I'm sure in the beginning it was that, as you explained uh-huh. with Polly Bailey. But since then, it's been researched and proven 
to be the the superior method, right? The gold standard with better outcomes, I'm sure, right? Absolutely. You know, in the early 2000s, we were doing a lot of research on delirium. We were seeing this big problem. Mm-hmm. And then um, we started to, I, I think a lot of people took the lead from Polly. Polly yeah. even challenged some of these researchers, what are you going to do about it? You're <laughs> identifying the problem. So what? Where's the solution? And they toured her ICU. People came from Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, Vanderbilt to see what she was doing. And that really inspired a lot of this um, efforts towards the ABCDEF bundle, Good. which is now known as what should be the gold standard of care. Mm-hmm. So that enrolled about the 2010s, okay. um, 2016, 17, this ICU liberation, the Society of Critical Care Medicine started really pushing this forward saying every ICU should and must practice the ABCDF bundle. And there were some really good efforts made, some really good um, traction gained. Mm-hmm. throughout a lot of the ICUs, I do see some gaps that have led to us to be where we're at now. Mm-hmm. They initially took out, um, they took champions from these ICUs, many, like I think it was at least 68 facilities, sent them to Vanderbilt, gave the, these champions, you know, they were PTs, RNs, MDs, they gave them this, this quick and dirty training mm-hmm. um, and sent them back to the units. And a lot of it was focused on lightning sedation, taking it off sooner and moving patients sooner, getting okay. them mobilized. So each acronym of the ABCDF bundle represents a tool okay. or a Wrong. All right. So A is assess, prevent, and treat pain. Okay. B is both spontaneous awakening and a breathing trial. So that should be taking sedation off, seeing if patients can take their own breaths, hopefully getting them extubated, right? Okay. C is choice of analgesia and sedation. D is delirium, assess, prevent, and treat. Mm-hmm. E is early mobility and F is family engagement. Okay. So all these tools are how we really customize and optimize how we care for each patient individually Mm -hmm. because we shouldn't have a conveyor belt approach for every patient right because their diagnoses their needs everyone's so different right um but there is a need to make it have a systematic approach to it Mm -hmm. so kind of what it turned into when not every member of every icu understood what they were working towards Mm -hmm. they weren't really educated as to what the harm is of sedation yes but they knew that they had to do awakening trials mean they had to take off sedation every day and do breathing trials they knew that there was some talk about mobility or whatever so there is a spectrum of compliance and mastery of this bundle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they did a study involving over 15,000 patients over, I think, 68 facilities during this ICU liberation ABCDF bundle rollout. Okay. And they compared it to kind of an average of all of their outcomes. So again, in consideration that there's a huge spectrum, only 12% of all those 15,000 patients were actually on their feet out of bed. Mm. So I would say probably on a lower side of compliance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but still they were steps in the right direction, right? Compared to what was automatic deep on everyone, don't move them ever, right? Right, right. So they made some momentum. Okay, so on average, they found that seven-day mortality decreased by 68%. Wow. They found that patients were 46% less likely to come back to the ICU. They were 36% more likely to go home from the hospital. Wow. And delirium and coma decreased by 25 to 50%. Nice. And of important note, they found that these outcomes were dose dependent. So if you look at the graphs where they show um, level of compliance compared to outcomes, mm-hmm. it's, line- it's linear every time. Yes. The less sedation patients received, the more they were mobilized, the better their outcomes. Right. 
Right. So I take those, those are impressive numbers and statistics. Yes. But that's an average considering that the Bailey method of no sedation, unless there's a need, walk everyone, unless there's a contraindication, that is a whole nother level of excellence and mastery of this bundle. But it validates her approach. Yes. It just doesn't fully capture it. Um, but nonetheless, all of, I mean, there are so many studies pointing in this direction saying, we know repeatedly when studies keep coming out, I kind of roll my eyes and groan. It's like, we know, we know. <laughs> Enough already. How much much more evidence do you need? (laughs) And the fact that you can still study this means that we are still stuck doing the same things. Yes. And the interventions they do to show that, like, if they're looking like, what's the benefit of this? I'm like, the way you did that was half A still. (laughs) That's exactly it. So that's the problem, though. If we're only teaching the what and not the why, that's the problem. If you just like the talk you and I just had about the dangers and the risks of sedation, and in fact, of those actual meds you were talking about that are toxic to muscle and brain, etc. Without that part of this podcast, even I wouldn't be so, you know, impressed already. You know, again, you can't just teach what to do. You have to teach why to do it. That's so important. And if there's anything that we can learn from the previous attempted rollouts mm-hmm. is that just the what doesn't cut it. Doing task lists, I think they're part of it. We do have, need to have things in the charting system. Mm-hmm. Um, task lists, certain tools. I mean, you know, we do need to be systematic about it. But if our heart's not in it, no. if nurses are not terrified of sedation and yes. immobility, they will never be inspired to change and focus on mobilizing patients and keeping them awake and mobile. Right. No, not without buy-in. Well, yeah, because yeah, they, they still believe um, that, that it's inhumane to have patients awake. Mm-hmm. And again, I think all of this is just doing awakening trials, starting sedation on everyone, and then taking it off later. I have noticed that that reinforces this belief that it's inhumane to be off sedation because patients, again, like I said, come out thrashing. You can see the tear in their eyes. If I, as a nurse, that that's all I'd ever seen, if I were here but an awake ICU, I would say no way because I would automatically assume that all patients were thrashing and writhing in terror mm-hmm. on the ventilator. What they don't get to experience until they become an awake and walking ICU is that when you let them wake up after intubation, it's like coming out of a colonoscopy and you get to connect with them and they can communicate and you know their needs and you can meet their needs and they stay calm, compliant. They often don't have to be restrained. Right. You get to treat them like humans. Yes. And when they experience that, done, they're bought in. Yes, that's so cool. So we've talked about the, the patient impact and the family impact, but but I've also been on ICUs and the effect of the patient immobility on the staff, you know, as a nurse who's, who has to help turn that patient or lift that patient or, you know, that's that's a lot of weight on the staff and the therapist, you know, all the staff, nurses, therapists, uh, res- respiratory, everyone. Let's talk about the, the difference between, you know, working in each type of ICU for the staff, because this also affects morale, physical, um, all of that. How, how, how an ICU nurse must feel knowing that their outcomes, you know, the, the odds of a patient going home from their ICU are so low. What must that do to your morale? I think that's a lot of the moral injury that happened during COVID. Oh, yeah. And they're giving their whole souls to caring for these patients that they never really even get to connect with or talk to or receive feedback mm-hmm. from, but they give them everything they can, the best of their ability in those circumstances, and they don't get to see them get better. Yeah, only to leave in a body bag. I did an interview with a, a nurse that had come in during COVID. And so that's all she knew. Okay. And she floated to another... I could think in neuro ICU. Mm-hmm. And she saw, and this is after like two years of being in the ICU, of just doing COVID basically. Mm-hmm. She went to the neuro ICU and she saw a patient get extubated and she heard their voice and she started sobbing in the room. Aww. 
And she realized in that moment how much of an impact it had made to see patients just decompose in front of her Mm -hmm. and never get better. And so when she heard my presentation, saw these case studies, pictures, videos, she was like, wait a minute, that, that, that is why I got into medicine. That's why I'm in the ICU. That's what I want. And so it's really, it's a hard ask. It feels like a hard ask initially to say, I know you're burnt out. I know there's a staffing crisis. What if we just do things totally different? That's, that's a hard sell. Yes. So I think we have to break it down and realize that what we are currently doing as far as sedating and immobilizing, that comes at a huge price to our clinicians. That is a lot of work. When it's normal to us and it's part of our skill set and we can do it with our eyes closed, we don't really appreciate how hard it actually is. Mm -hmm. But when you're running at least two different drips that you have to get double checked with another nurse and then sometimes you have to give vasopressors to compensate for it and you're titrating Mm -hmm. those and a central line to compensate for that and you're having to do all the turning, the lifting, the boosting, um, all the care. Like, And then delirium alone increases length of stay in the ICU by almost five days. Oh, wow. Um, And in the hospital by almost seven days. So all that's increasing workload to everyone, not just nurses. So if anything, it's an exchange of efforts. Maybe you're upfronting it saying, I'm going to stay in the room an extra 15 minutes to an hour to talk this patient through the endotracheal tube. Mm -hmm. I might have to answer a call a few more times. Right. (laughs) But um, then you actually get to see them get better and walk out the doors and get out their way sooner. So I actually had a team that I worked with that said, uh, our census is so low right now. I don't know what to do. I, I'm sure part of it that is that it's summer, but she's like, mm-hmm. I know that's part of it, but it's not usually like this during summers. We just get them out so fast wow. because they get better so fast. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it's kind of a problem for staffing. It's hard. They're like, well, where are our patients? You know, now they're not like <laughs> spending days to weeks here in delirium. What a good problem to have though. Right. That's a <laughs> One study showed that um, a big part of the psychological burnout on nurses right now is caring for patients with delirium. Mm-hmm. It is so hard and exhausting. It doubles the nursing hours required for care. Mm-hmm. So taking this approach of let's just, I mean, one team went with my this approach of the sedation and immediately they had a 50% reduction in delirium. Wow. So it just makes everyone's job easier. Right. You just need to have the the faith and the confidence. Just give it a go. Just let them wake up after intubation, talk them through it, and then watch the difference throughout their course. Mm-hmm. And then they get bought in. So I'm having teams reach out to me. I didn't tell them to do this. I've done this in my practice, but they're showering patients that are intubated. Wow. And I'm like, I didn't teach it because that's like awake and walking ICU 501, right? Yeah. And I'm like still trying to like work on one-on-one when I'm there in person <laughs> training them. I'm not going to like throw that at them. But They're living in the year 3000. and you're <laughs> Right. Well, they're they're intuitively like once they master this, they're like, okay, they're awake, they're walking, they're human, they're calm, they're strong. Why not shower them? There's like, that's what I would want, right? So um, it's really just amazing for them to be able to be innovative and creative and um, so humane to their patients. And they walk away Every shift, I remember working with a team and the first patient that we had awake um, was really difficult. Like psychosocially, he had some baseline cognitive impairments, hearing impairments. He Mm. had PTSD. He was anxious. He wasn't delirious and he wasn't weak yet, but he had this whole thing going on. Well, unfortunately, the nurse caring for him hadn't listened to my trainings before I showed up. So he was like, what are we doing here? We're doing what? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I was, I just, and he was a culture leader. You know, every team's got them. Um, We could have a quick and dirty of why. Mm -hmm. And he worked so hard that day and he listened to the patient. He sat there and let him write on the board. He took that time. And I, I saw him the next day and I, I I just, I knew he, I just braced myself for him to say something like, I'm never doing that again. Mm -hmm. And he said, We'll never have that patient again. I don't have him today. I asked for it not to have him today. And I was, you know, holding my breath. And he's like, but that was the best shift I've ever had in my whole career. Oh my gosh. What a testimonial. That's he awesome. just he's like, I actually felt like I did something that day. Yes. 
So I just heard from these teams and these clinicians, it's helping their burnout. Like when they catch a glimpse of what it should and could be and will be, they're like, okay, I will stay in critical care medicine. Okay. I'm about to leave, but I'm going to stay. It gives them purpose to fight for for these changes. Exactly. So you are definitely on a mission then to, to revolutionize the intensive care experience for patients and nurses. So it sounds like it kind of forced you into starting a business, a little bit of entrepreneurship, right? You created a cons- an actual consulting firm. What? How did that come about? Did you start the podcast first and then the firm? Or how, how did this all come oh, absolutely. about? No, absolutely. The podcast first. I assumed because I was working at Awake and Walking ICU mm-hmm. and I started the podcast right before COVID hit. I didn't know COVID was coming. It was just God was saying, start it now. Do these 30 episodes by the beginning of March 2020. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know podcasts, but I'm pretty sure you don't just whip out 30 episodes in six weeks. <laughs> But I did it. Wow. And in the in my closet, barricading the door for my toddler at five yeah. in the morning, you know. Um, so it was just a passion project. It was really just so that I could spiritually be at peace and sleep at night because I felt like I was liable for this information. I had this like secret to success. And then COVID hits and I'm like, well, now it's all about COVID. And God says, well, duh, this is all for COVID. Wow. So then I'm, I'm thinking millions of people on ventilators. The world has to hear this. So I keep going, right? Right. And it, it's a hard thing to change. But um COVID's become a big motivator, right? We're in a staffing crisis, financial crisis. So um, it kind of, the consulting thing was never on my radar, though I did interview, I moved my family to a different state, to Washington, to be closer to my parents. My daughter was having some chronic health complications. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed at a local hospital and I, I said po- point blank, um, the greatest value I can add to this team is to bring change how you, you sedate and mobilize patients. And they said, you can't walk patients on ventilators and basically shut the door. And I walked away being like, yeah, I don't want that job. One, like mm-hmm. talk about ethical turmoil working in that environment. But two, I would love to make that my sole purpose. Mm-hmm. If I could train them, I would be so fulfilled. I would love that. So um, I started doing presentations for teams like Grand Rounds. People, just podcast listeners were reaching out saying, I'm having a hard time getting my team on board. Can you do these presentations? And then it just posed this question of what does it take? What do they need mm-hmm. to really change, right? One presentation can make an impact. It's really compelling. It's exciting at first, but then I sign out and then they're like, okay, now we know that we're killing patients, but we don't know how to change it. So it just led me to develop a process, a program. I'm always tweaking it for every team. Everyone's different but really making sure that each and every clinician understands the why. Mm -hmm. So I do webinars beforehand. I do four webinars so that they understand very specific uh, principles. They understand what we're working towards. Mm -hmm. Not just, um, I I see liberation is fine, but what is it? It, It's very ambiguous. Right. But saying we're becoming an awake and walk in ICU. Here's why. And then here's how. And then I go on site with a physical therapist, a respiratory therapist. We participate in rounds. We run simulation trainings, like three sessions a day um, for day and night shift. We try to crank through every clinician. So they have the chance to apply what they learn in the webinars, practice together, learn how to collaborate together. We try to figure out what equipment do they need? What, how are they doing mm-hmm. their rounds? I mean, there's just so much mm-hmm. that goes into this. Yeah. It's not just turn sedation off. Good luck. Right. Yeah. Bye. So, Bye. So, so, a sim- so a simulation training, for example, you have, you use like a mannequin or how does that work? I, we actually um, use real people. So I either okay. have someone with me that I have played the patient or I, I've had physicians primarily pay the, play the patient. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I say, you know, here's, here's your, here's the diagnosis, here's your RAS, your haptolarium, so they know how to act. Mm-hmm, and they respond appropriately to different changes in the sedation and mobility and things that we do. And the team has to continually assess them and um, monitor their response. So it qu- takes quite the acting. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's a good empathy train as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good for teams to see their colleagues play that vulnerable role. Yes. Oh, that's, so, awesome. Um, that's awesome. It's, we try to make it as realistic as possible because it's much more comfortable to practice in that setting than to start practicing on your own 
patients. Uh, yes, exactly. Like any uh, clinical skill, really. Yep, totally. And it's a safe place to ask questions, raise concerns. Um, that's when we fight a lot of the barriers. And mm-hmm. this is one of the biggest cards to play for safe staffing ratios. Yes. So teams will say, we want this, but we can't get, you know, we don't need to have techs on the unit. So the nurses are answering the phones. And to that, I say, let me talk to them. Yeah. I, I mean, let's let's lay it out in the financial picture and talk about how expensive sedation and mobility is, whether it's pressure injuries, VAPs, delirium, length of stay, readmissions, all of it. It right. comes at a high cost, but when you don't realize there's another way, there's no reason to really be concerned about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is one of my favorite parts is being able to go to the C-suite, to the administrative administrators and say, you really have a personal interest in making sure that your team is equipped with the personnel and the training, the education to make this happen. Because here's what your, your hospital is actually paying for what we're doing. Yeah. Speak to them in their language. Speak to the CFO with numbers. Yes. Right now you're spending this much on this many days. We can save you this much. Yeah. That's absolutely brilliant. That's brilliant. So how, what does the process look like? So if a hospital would reach out to you and say they're interested, um, you said you have the, the webinars first. Yep. And they can record it and then um, oh, put it into their learning platform. So it's, it's immortalized. So mm-hmm. you're always going to have turnover, new clinicians come and they deserve to have the same heads up and training yes. so they can use it for that. It can be used for continuing education credits. Mm-hmm. So yes. um, that's just an easy way to do it. Um, but I think initially we we really need to focus on um, making sure that there's buy-in. Yes. So um, I think people maybe initially reach out expecting it to be like a few days, come come to our unit, show us how to do this, and then we'll take it from there. <laughs> but it's so complicated and we need to make sure they have enough support from the top down. Yes. So a lot of times it starts with doing the financial financial presentation, meeting with administrators, those financial um, decision makers to make sure that they're on board so that when the ICU has questions or hang up, they have their ear, they have their support. Yes. Um, And and so that's that's the, probably the best way to start. And then we have buy-in from all the clinicians. So sometimes it's a nurse manager reaching out saying, I want to do this. Um, how do we do this? Or a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. So all these different people, but they've got to have the rest of their team on board. So having a meeting with their leadership, designating champions of each discipline to make sure that they're going to have um, collaboration, accountability, discussions, right? It's a process of conversion. So they mm-hmm. need to have people that are um, responsible for making sure that this rolls out. Mm-hmm. But as they meet, they can say, RT, how's it going? What barriers? do you face? What do you hear from your team? What? How can we support your team in your role? And so we need to have that set aside to start with. And mm-hmm. then then I do the webinars with my goal is to do it with every clinician possible. So the teams that have had the best success are those that did mandate those webinars, that education for every member of their team. Yes. And so sure. initially, it really does, I'm sure, feel like another thing to do. Mm-hmm. And people drag their feet. And I just tell these leaders, just embrace it, just accept it, brace for it. Yeah. But it won't always be that way. Right. But they've right. been through so much that it's going to feel like just another one of those things. Um, but when they catch the vision and they understand, usually it changes. You're always going to have those few people, right? I can see in the surveys. Right. They're like, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, their eyes are opened. They're eager. They're listening. They're excited. Exactly. Yep. And again, that's the buy-in that you were talking about. That's yep. awesome. And it, it needs to be from every individual clinician connecting with back to their why, why they're in medicine, mm-hmm. what they want for their careers. Mm-hmm. And then when they were doing simulation training, nurses are realizing, oh, I don't have to like PT can help me with these things. Mm-hmm. I don't have to wrangle an agitated patient the whole time and I don't have to run back to sedation. I can call the occupational therapist to help me and we mobilize the patient and then they sleep and take a nap and my job's easier, right? Like, so they're yes. piecing it together. They're seeing it is in my best interest. This mm-hmm. isn't just another thing to add on to nurses. This is to help nurses. Beautifully spoken. Yes. Yes. That's really cool. But y- your mission is twofold, right? Because I, I see that 
on your website, you educate hospitals and staff, but I also see you directly reaching out to families of patients. Can we talk a little bit about that? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, mostly families reach out to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was happening organically. Um, and it's something that I, I've always wanted because as I explore this, again, the question comes, why didn't I know this? Yes. The ICU community doesn't know this. And then there's this point of guilt every time the public, the families, the patients do not know this. Mm. We do not give them informed consent. So as families reach out to me, especially during the pandemic, saying I, I like was Googling, I found your podcast. What do I do for my loved one? Um, I would just give them suggestions and and we kind of work through this process and it worked. Wow. For the I mean especially with the families that could figure out how to tactfully navigate advocacy and yes. teams that were open to them um they would the the patients would do so much better and they would get feedback from the team saying I can't believe this is happening. I've never seen a patient do this well. This is a miracle. This is amazing. And even the families will say this this is this, this could be most of your patients. Like yeah. I've heard for podcasts, this is the way it should be for everyone. And that's so it, I just think it could be this whole domino effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if the a nice suit doesn't buy in just from that experience, mm-hmm. that one patient was saved. Exactly. So that that's okay. So I, I try to make so I started the podcast walking you through the ICU so that I could refer patients and families to it so they could find it even if they didn't reach out to me as a consultant and use my services, they still have this information a sounding board. Yes. Yeah, to say welcome to the ICU. Here's here's what the ICU is about. Here's your role as a family member because they've been kicked out during COVID and they're having a hard time breaking back in. So for yeah. me, j- just to say, you are important because you are a powerful tool to prevent and treat delirium. Oh, by the way, here's what delirium is. Mm-hmm. Here's what it can cause. Here's what you're fighting for. Here's some tools. Here's the ABCDF bundle, like everything that they have a right to know. Yes. I try to do it very tactfully. We're not trying to knock on the um, clinicians. Mm-hmm. I try to explain what they've been through the pandemic, the staffing crisis, and so that they have some sympathy and they know how to support the ICU team, how to not be obstructive or total pest and bother, but how to have a really productive um, collaboration for the sake of the patient. Exactly. All working towards the same goal. Yes. Absolutely. That's really cool. So for those folks out there like me, when I heard, heard you for the first time, want to learn more, <laughs> I think... Um, the great first step then is your podcast, right? So you have two different podcasts. Can you explain that again? And and I will link these in my show notes. Absolutely. My main podcast is for ICU clinicians called Walking Home from the ICU. That is the goal. Mm-hmm. And that has, at uh, this point, 132 episodes. Wow. It has survivors, clinicians, and researchers sharing their journeys, survivors of awakened walking approaches, and survivors of sedation and immobility. Um, and then the podcast for families is Walking You Through the ICU. And that has has 11 episodes. I try, I'm really trying to keep it simple and succinct because there's a lot going on as you enter the ICU. Right. And then on my website, www.daytoniciuconsulting.com, there's a, a tab in the upper right-hand corner where you can make an appointment with me. I'm happy to chat with anyone. Awesome. Um, I'm obviously obsessed with this. I can't shut up about it. So put me to use. <laughs> I'm just in the, in the end, like it works. Yeah, it works. Yeah. Point blank. So we've got to just get it going. Whoever it comes from, whether it's the family or the one nurse or one physician, you can make a difference for that patient in that moment. Exactly. I think one of my favorite things on your website is there's a photograph of a patient who's intubated, but he's sitting at the bedside and I think he's, he's playing an instrument. I think a Uh guitar or something. Yeah. He's a COVID patient from that ICU. Oh my gosh. That's just beautiful. And I'm about to do a podcast interview with him. But he was, I mean, he was in his late sixties, severe COVID-19. And, uh, when I talked to him like six months to a year after discharge, he's like, yeah, I'm back up to like 60 pushups. Oh my God. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, me too. Not <laughs> <laughs> never. 
So he started out probably fairly strong, but the mm-hmm. fact that he was, I think in that picture, probably a week in, after intubation and still strong enough to strum a guitar. I'm not strong enough to strum a guitar at this point, but that's all because he didn't, he wasn't under propofol or this, this, these sedatives. That's exactly it. Yes. Yep. And before COVID, their pressure injury rate was less than 1%. Wow. The only time we really saw them was when they came from outside facilities with them. Wow. Just amazing. So listen, I don't want to embarrass you, but there's there's no cameras here. So <laughs> what happens in the Wound Care Karen podcast stays in the Wound Care Karen podcast. But I'm just <laughs> going to say this. I, I really think what you're doing is amazing. And it's just provocative. It's innovative. And I honestly, I just actually, I just did a podcast on the history of nursing. So I was, of course, researching Florence Nightingale and all that. And I really think that you are like a modern Florence Nightingale. And let me explain that. Florence Nightingale didn't invent things like clean conditions and nursing research. She didn't invent those. She learned those from the school she went to, the Deaconess School in Germany. When she went to to the war in Crimea and other hospitals and she saw, you know, the filthy conditions and just everything that needed to change. So she, she did the change, but she didn't just do it there and go home to London and marry someone. No, she, like you... She knew that wasn't enough, so she persisted. She started her own nursing school back in London where she taught these nursing processes. She wrote books to spread the word. If they had podcasting during her time, I'm sure she would have podcasts. <laughs> and because that's exactly what you're doing. You, you weren't content to just work in that wonderful awake and walking ICU in Utah. You feel the need to spread the word. That's exactly what you're doing with your podcast, your business, your website, the consulting firm. You're on a campaign to improve patient outcomes. And just like Florence Nightingale, you're bringing humanity and more importantly, I think, humaneness back to the bedside. So on behalf of nurses and patients everywhere, I really, really want to thank you. And I wouldn't be surprised, like seriously, I mean this, I'm being 100% serious when I say this. I really think that in 20 or 30 years, we will be talking about Dr. Kaylee Dayton and her awake and walking ICU revolution. I truly, truly believe that. So having said that, uh, I do ask this of all my guests, if Hollywood were to make a movie of you, and they might do that someday, what celebrity, and this could be living or dead, what celebrity would you like to star as you and why? I don't really know celebrities. I had to ask my husband. Okay. Who (laughs) does he think? (laughs) He said Taya Leone, and she played uh, Madam Secretary in Madam Secretary, and I loved that show. Good. So So he's like, you love that show. You guys have some spunk in common, and yeah, that'd be it. So Taya Leone. Yes, Yes. exactly. Again, it's. I think it's because of your drive. You're not content to just sit back and let things happen. You have a drive, a push, a mission. And like you said, even if you change one patient's life, this will have all been worth it. I I mean, I I have this big vision. I get so uh, fixated on it and I want to do more and more and more. But um, it is when when podcast listeners and families, when they reach out and tell me these stories, yes, I have to remind myself that if it was just that one, if that was the only one, it would have been worth it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But being on platforms like this and meeting with nurses, I do have a big vision because I do deeply believe in nurses and IC clinicians in general. And it's 2023. We have such a better way to to disagree 
disseminate this information. If Polly Bailey could have done this mm-hmm. um, back in 2007, maybe this would be different. So there's nothing to lose other than more patients. I agree. I agree. And perhaps uh, the COVID pandemic uh, would have had better outcomes too. Again, if, if this was more widespread uh, when that hit us in 2020 and, and on. So certainly, but there may be more pandemics to come and we're going to be more prepared next yes. time. Thanks to you. I, yeah, I totally, totally agree. That's awesome. So thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. Um, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, this podcast was recorded in my studio on the Hill in San Antonio, Texas, during a rousing full moon in Sagittarius in June of 2023. It was written, produced, and edited by Wound Care Karen, and I did it all while organizing my thimble collection. The views expressed here belong to me and my guest, and not our employer or affiliates. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and give me a five-star review. If you have ideas for future podcast content, please drop me a line at contact at woundcare.com. Karen.com or message me on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. I'm Wound Care Karen, and please remember, folks, time does not heal all wounds. So if that happens to you, please seek help from a wound care professional.